Hi, I'm Tim Elmore, and I'm choosing truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? I admit that I was slow to recognize the differences between generations. Maybe it's because I'm a part of Gen X, and so I'm a bit skeptical of anyone that sounds like they're trying to sell me a product. But as I work with four generations inside our church staff team, it's pretty clear that I was wrong. There really are distinct generational differences, and if you don't understand them, you're going to run into some problems and maybe even be a less effective leader. Here's a quick story that might sound silly, but I think is representative of the issue. I was talking with a staff member who is solidly Gen Z. We occasionally have to exchange texts about work-related subjects. And in the course of this conversation, it came up that when she and her friends text, they use no capital letters or punctuation. When I follow grammar rules and my text to her, she wonders if I'm yelling, like, am I really mad at her for some reason? Now, like I said, that example, while true, is a bit silly. But it reminds us that people in different generations, well, they see things differently. What generation you're a part of will affect how you view something like institutions, such as the church. Do you think we need to build them or burn them down? When it comes to work, how do you motivate people who are a part of different generations? Well, Tim Elmore is the guy I'm talking to today. In this episode, we start talking about Gen Z, but then we quickly get to the subject of his new book, Generational Diversity in the Workplace. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Tim Elmore, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Great to be with you, Keith. I've read a lot of your books, and man, you've written quite a few. But there's one book that I read that I thought, I've got to talk to him, and it's the book A New Kind of Diversity. Now, here's the reason it all came about, is that my wife found a quiz that your team or you put together on your website, and she sent it to our family. Now, my family of four kids range from 20 to 27, and we eat dinner together once a week. And we always have some sort of family discussion. So the family discussion this week was going to be that we all had to take your quiz, and then we were going to talk about how we did. And it was about how generations interact within the workplace. And so we're sitting around talking about it, and we all did really poorly. And I'm surprised I did so bad because I got kids who are kind of older end of Gen Z, young millennials. I work with a lot of Gen X, boomers. I thought, I'm going to do great on this quiz. Yeah. And I was horrible at it. So why is there such widespread ignorance about how generations operate inside the workplace? That's a great question. And I think you and I would both agree we don't want to stereotype, but there does seem to be a widening gap. My hypothesis is this, 
the gap has grown wider over the years. I mean, we've been talking about generation gaps since the 1960s when the baby boomers were the young kids on the block. But the gap has gotten wider as the screens in our life have gone from public, the TV, to private, the portable device, where now I can live in a niche that's completely just me. I'm on Instagram. I got five Finsta accounts, you know, says a teenager. (laughs) And mom and dad only know about the one Instagram account. So I think we can live a life that's in an echo chamber of our own kind And we can feel like it's a cross-cultural interaction when we get with a person from another generation. Okay, that's interesting. So you're saying, if I understand it right, that because we have these private screens, it's allowed us to live inside of maybe kind of bubbles, you might say. And so we aren't as informed about other groups of people. And that includes people of different generations. Absolutely. And I'll tell you what, the metaphor that I often use when I explain this or when I think about it myself is if I hop on an airplane and I fly to another country, when I hop off that airplane, I'm psyched up to work harder to connect with people there in China or wherever, Mm -hmm. because I know they speak a different language. They have different customs. They have different values. Bingo. I think at my age, when I talk to a 16-year-old, Different language, different customs, different values. And I don't want to sound cliche, but I think if I'll do the work to connect with that 16-year-old that I do in China to connect with a guy or gal, now I've got a chance to build a bridge rather than a wall to that person. It's interesting metaphor of kind of cross-cultural communication, yeah. because if you get on that plane and fly to a different country, like you said, you're prepared to do the work. But when you're operating in your own cultural context, where people generally look alike or talk alike, you don't think you need to do as much work. But yeah. we're finding out that there's a lot of work that we got to do. I mean, I found out when I took that quiz, I thought, man, I I was surprised at how wrong I was on things. Okay, so just for people who have a hard time keeping track of all the generations, can you just tell us, and I'll lead you through here, we'll start with boomers and go backwards, of generally how old these generations are and just maybe one or two sentences describing them. So boomers, if you're a boomer, how old are you today? All right, the baby boomer generation is one that I'm a part of. Our generation was born between 1946 and 1964. And we were called baby boomers, Keith, because nine months after World War II was over, the maternity wards filled up. There was a (laughs) boom of babies as the soldiers came home. So 76.4 million kids. That was the boom. Characteristics? Well, we were pretty audacious back in the day because it was post-World War II. America was awesome. Shopping malls were springing up. McDonald's was franchising. It was kind of a large and in charge feel in America. After boomers come baby busters or Generation X, they would be born between 1965 and 1980, 81, 82, okay? And they were called baby busters first, not Gen X, because the first year of their generation's existence was the public introduction of the birth control pill. So instead of a boom, it was a bust. (laughs) It went way down by tens of – in fact, if you add on top of that Roe v. Wade in 1973, you have a shrinking population, not a booming population. So those years – think about the late 60s all the way through the 70s. It was a darker time. The Vietnam War was on, and it was a debatable thing because it was on television at 6 o'clock on the news. The Watergate scandal was happening. Political figures were lying from the White House. The OPEC gas crisis, the failed Iran hostage rescue, so many dark things were going on. And even though Xers were just kids back then, they looked up at the grownups and they were skeptical. 
Xers grew up a little more cynical and skeptical <laughs> themselves as kids. All right, next come the millennials. And social scientists date them slightly differently on beginning and end, but 80s and 90s kids, okay? Mm -hmm. Millennials are once again a large and in charge generation. I don't know if you know this, but the millennials are now the largest generation in America. Bigger than the boomers. Bigger than the boomers, yeah, 80 million strong. And with immigration, which is the wild card, they may grow as large as 100 million strong. It's an amazing thing. So millennials are now in their profession. Okay, They're out of school and they're young professionals. Actually, the oldest of them are nearing midlife now. But they would be called the millennials because all of their adult life will be spent in this new millennium, the 21st century. They are large and in charge, as I mentioned, very confident, very audacious, a great sense of agency because as they grew up, so did the cell phone, so did the computer. I like to give them the mantra as they started their career, life is a cafeteria, it's a buffet. And then Generation Z, which would be the youngest people in the workplace, they would be middle school, high school, college, and young professionals. They're the kids that really have grown up in the 21st century. They're called Gen Z following Gen Y, which would be the millennials. But one historian, Keith, calls them the homelanders because their generation started at about the same time as the Department of Homeland Security. So anyway, there's a quick nutshell of the five generations that would be at work or four or five generations, and they can be living in different worlds and yet needing to work together. And you know what I think the sad thing is? I think sometimes in the workplace, we felt like the goal is just to endure each other, mm -hmm. tolerate each other, rather than leverage the strengths of each generation. And that's what I'm after in this book, to try to really capitalize on what are the strengths. So I'm Gen X. You mentioned you were part of the boomer generation. I'm on the older end of Gen X. And like you said, we are cynical. Watergate, Vietnam, we have plenty of reasons to be cynical. So maybe if you will, forgive me for asking some questions that might push against this generational thing, just because I've always wanted to ask of someone, you're the expert. All right. So here we yeah, go. Sure. When you think about what shapes a person, you know, there's so much involved, right? Your birth order, your family you grew up in, what part of the country you, you know, class, race, all these things. How much does generational influence play a part in shaping who we are and how we see the world? It's a great question. And you're absolutely right. So many other factors shape it. I would be lying if I said, this is the main thing, or this is the only thing. Just like you said, personality, family origin, et cetera, are huge. But here's what I would say to volley back, just to give perspective. I think the generational cohort we're a part of is playing an increasingly important role because culture seeps in more quickly now. When I was growing up, we had one screen in our home, the black and white television in the <laughs> early 60s, okay? And family gathered around and watched I Love Lucy or Dick <laughs> Van Dyke or Andy Griffith or whatever. We'd laugh together, talk about it together. We were together. Fast forward now decades, then we got multiple TVs, then we got a computer, then we got multiple computers. And today, you and I, I know, have a smart device in our hand. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned earlier... I can live in a subculture that is uniquely mine that I choose. And then that smart technology feeds me, you know, Facebook feeds me posts that they think I will like. So I feel like we need to pay attention to this, not as the only factor, but as an increasingly important factor. I'll go back to that cross-cultural thing. Just like in China, being from China is not the only thing. They're human, like I'm human. They may be female or male like me, but it's a factor. So mm -hmm. we do well to pay attention to it. So you were talking about how fast culture is changing. 
in these little devices. Is that the reason we're talking about generations more than maybe we did previously? Because my guess is if we went back 100, 200 years, there wasn't so much talk about generational influences in our life. So it seems like this is a current conversation that wouldn't have been replicated in the past. Is that true? Yeah, I think so. I think it was the 20th century that we really first began to think about distinct generations. Although David in the Psalms talks about passing on to the other generations. But here's what I think. I think change happens more rapidly. So we have micro generations now, right? They're even shorter. Even Gen Z, there's different niches. <laughs> I talked to a college senior recently that said, what's up with a freshman? You know, like they're only three years apart, but it's like, oh my gosh, what's up with that? But think about this, Keith. We travel more now, so I'm exposed to more, even younger sometimes. So in the book, I even list a number of factors why generations are a thing today. But the most profound discovery, I think, on this was not made by me. It was Margaret Mead, the famous anthropologist of the 20th century. She divides human history up into three stages, and she's very wise as she describes each stage. She said, millenniums ago, we lived in a post-figurative era. And what she meant by that is young people growing up thousands of years ago learned things post the adults. In other words, it was the adults that taught them everything. If you were a boy, you did what your daddy did as a career. Good luck with that. They would choose your marriage partner for you. And you just were to repeat the customs and traditions of that older generation time and time and time again. With the dawn of the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, we went into what she called the co-figurative era. Now the young and old together figure things out because reason became king. We hold these truths to be self-evident, our Constitution said, right? So now you're choosing with mom and dad your marriage partner. You're choosing with mom and dad your career. You follow me? Margaret Mead, even 50 years ago, saw something on the horizon that I think we're experiencing today. She called it the prefigurative era. And she said, with the onslaught of new technology happening so fast and the change of pace in society being so quick, she said, I think we're moving into a time where the young will figure things out faster than the old. And don't you believe we're in that now? I go to my kids when my phone's broken or whatever, you know, that sort of thing. And I'm being silly now, but... I think everybody listening would go, holy smokes, yeah. So we need to know there are modern elders around today, but there are young geniuses around today. And we need to benefit from each other. And that's the point of this book and really the point of this conversation. Well, it's interesting that you said that because let's go back to the quiz I told you that my wife sent and we all took. And I said, we all failed it miserably. That's not exactly true. The youngest in our family, 20, he did far better than anyone else. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. just didn't want to give him credit. <laughs> but when you say how now we're learning from our kids, sure, it's about technology and my phone's broken or how do I turn on the television? Right. I get that. But it's about bigger things than that. It's about deeper issues that they are, I don't know if it's more observant. I don't know if it's individualized to, from person to person, but I do see that we are learning from younger people about 
significant issues. Now, one of the things that you do in the book is you quote an old guy. And let me set it up this way, is that I think that people who are boomers or Gen X, like you and me, we might look down at Gen Z and go, these people are lazy, they're selfish, they're self-absorbed. I know the millennials got a lot of that. So in the book, New Diversity, you quote an old guy. Let me just read it real quick. Children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise. Children are now tyrants not the servants of their household. They no longer rise when the elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up dainties at the table, cross their legs, and tyrannize their teachers. Now, you might think that's a boomer or, you know, somebody like you or me talking about kids today. Turns out that was Socrates, right? Yeah. And so I guess my point is that for generations now, I mean, for centuries, older people looked down and said, look, these are how the young kids act. And so is this really something that just passes from generation to generation that old people look down on young people? Or is there something to it more than that? No, it's true. You're right. In fact, I quote in the book more than Socrates. There's others from history that we've always said, kids today, kids today, what are we going to (laughs) do? Well, in the book, I actually point out the term generation gap is actually a term that was adopted or created in the 1960s when the baby boomers were the young kids on the block. And the older generation didn't understand this audacious generation that was protesting Vietnam or whatever. Well, here's what's hilarious. Now the baby boomers are the old cantankerous generation or whatever. (laughs) Ah, kids, we are... And I'm telling you, it cycles through. That's why I think we need to step backward and be wise. We need to say every older generation is going to be a little bit more stuck in our thinking. It typically happens. And we need to say, what can we learn? What can we learn? That's why I love the idea of reverse mentoring. I talk about that in the very last chapter. Reverse Mm -hmm. mentoring is when the old and the young get together, okay? And you swap stories. You can always find something common when you swap stories. But then clearly the older generation has something to pass on to the young, but then the young can say, here's how we can use the latest app I just got to market our company or whatever. Oh, I love the term Chip Conley talks about, mentors. We need to be mentors. I'm a mentor and an intern at the same time. That's the place I need to play right now. So in the book, you use the word foreign as an acronym to help understand Gen Z. So can you just walk us through that acronym and help us get our mind around Gen Z, kind of a large scale picture? Yeah, absolutely. Some of these words I'm about to give you listeners may seem very edgy and some of them are edgy, but they're all data-based. So the letter F in foreign is this generation, Gen Z, is more fluid in their sense of identity than any generation before them. You probably hear this or know this if you look at what's happening in schools. Kids are not necessarily binary. They're fluid. They're choosing what gender they are, et cetera, and what kind of person they want to be. So teenagers have always not quite been sure about who they are, but it's really fluid right now. It may be changing from month to month. The letter O is overwhelmed. Mental health issues are greater than they've ever been with young people, middle school, high school, college. In fact, the number one word that college students use today to describe their life is the word overwhelm, 94%. So we've got to figure this anxiety thing out. Bosses, employers, teachers, coaches, we've got, and moms and dads, we got to figure this thing out. The letter R, reinvention. So Gen Z doesn't just want incremental change or tweaks 
to the world. They want to reinvent it. We saw protests, did we not, in 2020? That was a picture of, we need to reinvent this. I think many young people look at our generation, Keith, and go, how'd you let this happen? How did you let this happen? (laughs) They for sure do. Whatever it is, racism or whatever. So just know, you want to tweak it maybe, they want to reinvent the whole thing. The letter E is entrepreneurial. This is fascinating to me. 72% of public high school students in America, 72% want to be an entrepreneur. So they want to start something, not just join something. And part of the reason is they look at our companies, our churches or whatever, and they go, I don't want to join that. I want to start something else myself. So right or wrong, let's say you're an employer listening. How could you create gig economies inside the workplace where it feels like they can be entrepreneurs in something even larger? It's just huge. In fact, I don't know. I don't know if you want to volley back on that one, but I just think that's a huge issue. I don't know. What do you see where you live on that? Well, I'm a pastor of a church. And so we have tried to figure out how do we resource people to do things they're passionate about, as opposed to just doing what we tell them from the top down. And they're going to have better ideas about how to influence their culture than we are. And so what we see is people in Gen Z picking up ministries and running forward with them in ways that we probably wouldn't have even thought of, much less had the courage to practice. So I agree completely with you. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So the letter I is independent. They are, unlike millennials, more independent in their growth and learning. So millennials played soccer in teams and even learned with teams. Gen Z, thanks to the pandemic especially, was forced to learn alone on a device you know, or a screen. So we need to get ready for at least their natural habitat. Now, they need community. They need each other, but oftentimes aren't even quite sure how to do a healthy relationship. I don't mean to sound insulting, but we've not conditioned them. We've not socialized them well, thanks to things that have just happened growing up. Well, isn't that kind of the mentor thing, the reverse mentoring? Yes. So some generations, maybe you and I, we had the opportunity to live in more in community, like you were describing people sitting around the television set. And so we had people to ask questions to. But now what I'm seeing that Gen Z doesn't come and necessarily ask you a question naturally. They might want to. They just don't have those kind of relationships. And you can just go to Google and you can ask Google your questions. So it seems like we can win if we can set people up to be in relationship, that they crave that, but they also need it because that's where you you learn, you know, how do I balance my checkbook? How do I decide where to go to school? How do I make decisions? Who do I marry? How do I handle conflict in my marriage? Those are the kinds of questions that Google can't answer. They require wisdom of other people. No doubt about it. In fact, I was just doing a radio interview where the host said she talked to her nephew, who's a 20-something, and he said, I don't know how to talk to people. I've forgotten how to talk to people. Isn't that interesting? Now, I'm not saying that's everybody, but he was admitting, I don't know how to do this interaction thing or it's work. All right. So the letter G in foreign, I I use the word geek. That's probably an antiquated word, but I was describing the natural connection they have with being connected technologically. By 2020, 90% of toddlers had a tablet or were on a tablet. (laughs) 75% of kids today own their own device. So this is normalized. They're going to be much more at home with a screen, maybe than a face-to-face conversation, but that's it. And then the letter N in foreign, networked. 
So again, that's kind of a 90s term, but they are so well connected globally. So even though they might not know how to do that face-to-face conversation with somebody except on match.com or whatever, they're so networked all around and it's very natural for them to work that network, whether it's on a social media platform or just a device with instant messaging that we need to get used to. So that would be their description. I'm kind of blown away by the number you threw out of the number of what toddlers or young children who have access to technology. And that might explain why we have some of the anxiety or breakdown in face-to-face communication because they're growing up with their parents putting a screen in front of them. Yeah. A few years ago, my he's now 22, but I was probably 18 at the time. He came in and he had a shirt on that said, birds aren't real. Are you familiar with this phenomenon? Yes, absolutely. To be yeah. honest, I didn't at the time. I didn't know. And later I learned about it. But birds aren't real. Or if I understand it right, and I'm not sure I do, so maybe you can correct me, is Gen Z's version of a conspiracy theory that's yeah. not real. Yeah. They're pretending it's a conspiracy theory. The people are all in on it. But it's kind of mocking. It's trying to be absurd and point out the absurdity in the world. I'm wondering if you can give me an insight of what that tells us about Gen Z. Does that just tell us that... They're laughing at the problems of the world and they don't know how to address them. They see them as so overwhelming. So all they know to do is make fun of them. I don't know. What insight does it give us into their generation that they're creating mock conspiracy theories to make fun of the problems in our society? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, actually. So much could be said about this, but the birds aren't real thing. It's a little bit of a viral thing. Mm-hmm. They wore t-shirts and bracelets and so forth came it's out. It's kind of a big deal. Yeah. And then there were other things. It started with birds and then it went on to other things. But you're absolutely right, Keith. It's them mocking or making fun of oftentimes older generations. I guess it's not limited to older that seem less savvy than they are. They're Mm. clearly savvy that, you know, this, that and the other isn't happening or is happening. I know some conspiracy theorists that teenagers just absolutely laugh at that they believe we didn't land on the moon. Neil Armstrong did not land on the moon. The world is flat, blah, Mm -hmm. blah, blah. And Gen Z would just chuckle at that and go, OMG, you know, this (laughs) is ridiculous. So there is a savviness to Gen Z that wasn't even there with millennials and Gen Xers. I think it increases with every generation as they get information in their hands at a young age and they feel like I know this and you older folks don't. So just know that savvy is a huge issue. In fact, let me comment one more thing. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. In the book, I put a two-page generation chart where I compare and contrast the generations that might be around today or working together today. So my mom and dad's generation that grew up during the Great Depression and World War II, their view of authority was respect authority. Even if you didn't vote for the president, you respect the office. You respect the police. There's a new one. You respect the police. You respect the mayor. Today, Generation Z's view of authority, if they were honest with us right now, I think they would say, not sure I need you. And I say that not because that's true. I think they do need leaders. They do need moms and dads and leaders and teachers and coaches. But I'm telling you, they got a smart device in their hand and they're asking Google questions that kids used to ask mom and dad, you know? Do you think that it is that they don't need it or that they just don't respect it? 
and maybe those are related. Maybe they don't respect it and therefore they don't think they need it. But it seems like institutional trust has declined across no generations. Doubt. And, you know, it ranges from Congress to the Supreme Court to schools to wherever. Nobody is exempt. The church is surely not exempt from that either, which I want to talk about more here in just a second. But it seems like Gen Z has just said, okay, we're done with institutions because they have failed us over and over and over. And I guess having access to the network of friends across the world and digital technology allows them to feel like they can operate just fine without these institutions. Now, I don't think that ends well, right? I mean, we need institutions as a society and it leads to more atomization, individualism, which I don't think helps anybody at the end. But I get why they think the way they do. I have to admit, I kind of think the way they do, right? I don't have a lot of trust for institutions either. It's hard to these days. They haven't proven themselves trustworthy, or at least in a lot of people's opinion. Yeah, 100%. I have one more question about Gen Z, and then I want to get more into the work atmosphere. So Gen Z and the church, what's their view of church? It seems like a lot of people in Gen Z are deconstructing. They're walking away from religion. We've seen this, the rise of the nuns and the duns, and you know everybody's got their play on the word. Does the church need to adapt? I mean, I think if I understand right, you're part of a faith community. You know, what do faith communities need to do to be relevant and present and helpful to this newer generation? Yeah, that's a great and loaded question <laughs> you're asking there. But I do believe you're spot on in what you just observed. They look at traditional institutions that would include the government, education, corporate America, the church. And they just feel like it's not trustworthy, that these leaders are really into themselves or their own profit, let's say. And they would go, I don't want to be a part of that. It's disingenuous. So you're absolutely right that by and large, with some exceptions, they are deconstructing. The trouble is, if you deconstruct some traditional institution, it does lead to very poor outcomes unless you reconstruct something better. Right. So deconstruction must have reconstruction. I mean, think about the Civil War. We deconstructed the way our country was being run because it was wrong with slavery. But reconstruction didn't really work super mm -hmm. well, you know? So I think anybody listening, old or young, I would just encourage you, once you say defund the police, let's say, well, what's your alternative? Do you have something that actually works? And I'm not even saying defund is all wrong, but I'm thinking it's all wrong and we got nothing. <laughs> you know, we just got chaos out there. So anyway, I don't know if I fully answered or responded well, to your I question. Well, I guess the church would be in the same way, right? That yes, we understand yeah. Gen Z is turned off. I mean, I'm a pastor. I'm turned off by the church a lot of times. So I'm not casting stones. I feel like I'm in the same boat. And we see scandal or we see ineffectiveness or we see a self-protection to just perpetuating your own existence and a lack of usefulness in the community. And so I think that they're saying, well, why would I want to be a part of this? And what you're saying is, yeah, but we need to reconstruct a vision of faith that makes a difference in people's lives, that is sacrificial, that follows Jesus and not kind of a self-perpetuating myth. And I hope we can do that. We have to make that transition. Otherwise, you know, we're a little bit in trouble. We're in trouble. Yeah.
We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. But today, I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together, that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. Let me volley back on that. I think you're spot on. And while I can't speak for all Gen Z members everywhere, here's what I would say that they would say to our question, what do we do? I think they would want the church community to be authentic. Now, that would go without saying with any new generation, but they by and large think the church is overproduced Mm. and overprogrammed. It's a show rather than a display of authentic faith that sometimes fails and stumbles and isn't transparent about that failing and stumbling. So they talk about overprogram, overproduce. Maybe we come in with a more genuine version of it. But then here's what I would say. A pastor might go, well, we have to have a good production. Look what we're up against. Netflix, YouTube, you know, this, that, and the other. But I would say, then do something that Netflix can't do. Have relationship, have community. Netflix can't produce a community. I think the church needs to offer what can't be offered with the productions that they're getting 24-7 and they can binge on. So I'll stop there, but I feel like we've got to do what only we can do. Okay, that's really, really good. And what makes it hard, I mean, just as a pastor of a church, what makes it hard is that the different generations who make up your church all have different expectations. Yes. And they want (laughs) different things. And so if you wanted to go start a Gen Z church— or a boomer church, or you know something in between, it would be easier to do. The hard part is having people with a wide variety of influences and expectations, especially about quality, excellence. What you're calling production can be done well, or it can be done poorly. It can be genuine, or it can be disingenuous. It's hard to put those together. But I really like what you say about the church must provide what these other media companies can't do, other platforms can't do. So like, take somebody like Joe Rogan, Gary Vee, Jordan Peterson. They seem to strike a chord with multiple generations, but in Gen Z too. And they seem to be very direct, like, hey, let's get your life together. Is that Gen Z kind of looking for that authority figure in their life that they haven't found because they've been, you know, in COVID or they've been just looking at their screens or, or what is it? Why do they like such direct, in-your-face, confrontational media figures? It's authentic. Mm. Jordan Peterson, for instance, isn't afraid to call out the dude in our (laughs) lives. And clearly there's other reasons as well, but he is so countercultural that he's attractive. Mm. He isn't just going with the flow of the, you know, progressive, blah, 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 academician. He's got some conservative thinking mixed in with it all. 
So mm-hmm. I think part of it is Gen Z longs for truth, I think. It's not always fun to get it. You and I would agree with that. But be authentic in your communication of truth, but be forthright. And I feel like that's what has drawn Gen Z and others to someone like a Jordan Peterson. Well, one reason you're so good about talking about Gen Z is you've put a lot of effort into it. One of your other books that I read that I really liked is Generation Z Unfiltered. But in this new book, New Diversity, you talk about, and you already kind of mentioned that you have this chart in there about how each generation responds to workplace issues. And I think one of them, if I remember, is work ethic. And just, you know, how do the different generations approach what some people call work-life balance or just hard work? We see a wide variety of responses in generation of how much they're committed to be there early, leave late. There's certain expectations that Gen Z has that other generations didn't have. Help us understand that. And how does that interrelate in the workplace? Because that can cause a lot of tension, right? Like you're lazy accusations or you're not really committed to what we're doing, but that's not how everybody sees it. So help us frame that. Yeah. So older generations, please forgive me if it sounds like I'm stereotyping. I'm really not. But the goal here is not to stereotype, but to understand a mindset. So older generations, let's say Gen X and boomers, would be much more prone to be dutiful in what we've been asked to do. And by that, I don't know if that sounds like a bad word, a good word, but we've got a duty. We've got a responsibility. Fulfill it. Stay till five, maybe beyond five o'clock, you know, that sort of thing. Gen Z As I interact with both millennials and Gen Z, which we have the two younger generations at work, dutiful would not be the word you'd use to describe them, at least from us to them. They don't like ought to. You ought to do that. You ought to attend that wedding. You ought to be there for grandma's birthday or whatever. It seems like, oh, I don't want that. I'll do it if I want to. So again, there's a disparity between the way older and younger think there. But here's what I found, Keith. If they lock into something they're passionate about, a cause, a product, an idea, their work ethic is as high as anyone, but they got to have a passion for it. So they would be less prone like their grandparents' generation, just go to a job at a conveyor belt and an assembly line in a factory and do the job eight to five. But if you get them a job that they absolutely love, oh my gosh, their best work may be at midnight, not noon. (laughs) And they may continue to work and you go, oh my gosh, look at your work ethic. Well, it's work ethic, but it's a different kind. And I think we need to understand this different kind to tap into what's inside. So you're saying that Gen Z is more motivated by purpose, like a cause, what they're doing, why they're doing it, as opposed to duty. This is my responsibility as a good citizen or a good employee. So how do workplaces take advantage of that? Because you could dislike that. I mean, I'm sure that there's a lot of bosses who would just say, no, just do it. Or you can leverage it, like you mentioned earlier, for the good of your company. So how does a boss, an employer leverage the Gen Z desire to work with purpose? Great question. So I think we need to start not with what, but with why. Simon Sinek did an entire book on this, and it's so, so good. So for a Gen Z team member, by and large, with some exceptions, an employer in an interview might want to go through the why first, why this company exists, why we are doing what we're doing, and then ask them about their why. You might find out in the interview, you know what, this really isn't the right company for you. I wish you the best, but I'll see you. But if you get to the why and their why really overlaps with the why of the organization, now you've got a chance to really get a passionate team member. So that would be number one. Another one would be 
identity plays such a huge role in Gen Z. Remember, we talked about fluid identity just a minute ago. Mm -hmm. They're very, very Mm -hmm. fluid. They are, like many other youth generations, trying to find themselves. They may hate me saying that, but it's true. We did. They do. So I met a really cool Gen Zer just a few years ago. He was a senior at West Point, the military academy up in New York. And over breakfast, I said, Trey, tell me what you want to do when you're done here. He said, well, Dr. Elmore, I got to be honest with you. I don't know what I want to do. I'm working on my who before my what. And I thought, this is brilliant at 21 years old. And he went on to say, I'm reading books. I'm getting mentors. I want to decide the man that I want to become. Then I'll decide the what and when and where and how. And I thought, oh my gosh, I wish that everyone launched into their adult life with the who and the why question first. So I'll stop there. But I think that's huge for companies to understand. We've heard a lot about quiet quitting, yeah. which at least the version that I understand is that people kind of doing the minimum, going through the motions, not actually quitting their job, yes. but quitting in the sense that they're not going to give it their best. They're not going to give anything extra. Yeah, Is that a Gen Z thing? And kind of related to that, the whole great resignation, people leaving jobs and going to look for another, is that driven by younger generations? Is that this idea that I want to find my why and I'm not going to just be content with going through the motions? Help me understand those in the workplace and what employers should be doing to kind of counter that a little bit, to kind of motivate their employees so that they're not quiet quitting. Nobody wants that in their workplace. Yeah. So for years, employee data has shown that team members are disengaging, not completely, like you said, but they're emotionally disengaging, but they'll do the bare minimum and leave at five. And that's troublesome because I think you and I both believe you go to the second mile, you give the extra effort. If someone asks you for your shirt, you give them your coat as well, you know, that sort of thing. (laughs) So Gen Z wasn't the only generation that participated in the great resignation, but they led the way in terms of numbers. More left their job, and I do believe they were looking for something, sometimes that paid better for sure, but was much more engaging to who they are. They thought life is short. I want to be fully in if I'm going to spend this much time during my day at 81 Place. So I just finished a book, Keith, that was so good. It was written by John Clifton, the CEO of the Gallup organization. The book was called Blind Spot. And he said, so many countries and companies. We're measuring unemployment rates or gross domestic product or, you know, things like that, raw numbers, but we missed something. It was a blind spot and it was engagement and happiness and contentment and satisfaction. So this led to all kinds. In fact, he even says in the book, the reason the election of Donald Trump to be our president in 2016 was so shocking, we did not know how many people were dissatisfied with the status quo. Sure. Now, do we agree with who that? Maybe not. But the point is, there are millions of people that said, I don't want to just a regular guy. And here's this outsider that comes in that's completely fruit basket upset. I mean, let's be honest, he was. So I feel like as leaders, parents, coaches, teachers, we need to be saying, all right, there is a discontentment. Maybe we can tap at them and win them at the heart level by finding out some deeper questions as we question them, as we interview them. And I go back to the why, I go back to the who. What will follow later? But I think these are the root questions 
we need to be answering. And if we're not, we're going to find quiet quitting continuing for years and years and years. You've helped me connect a few dots there. I need to think about this more. I don't have any grand point at the end of it, but you're kind of saying that this general discontentment out there in society manifests itself in politics. It manifests itself in kind of a distrust of institutions, of how we think about our work environments and kind of the quiet quitting, the great resignation. And maybe even something like opioid use and mental health issues, anxiety, depression, that there's this ache in America's soul. And we're seeing that play out in Gen Z, just like we're seeing it play out in every generation. It just manifests itself a little bit differently. So one more thing here is that it seems like boomers are having a hard time moving off center stage, let's say, right? They're controlling our country. We have our leaders from Nancy Pelosi to Donald Trump to Joe Biden to Chuck Schumer. I mean, Mitch McConnell, these people are old, just to be frank. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't appreciate all that they've done and the service that they've given. They've given a lot, whether you agree with them or not. But I am saying that I think most of us think it's time for some new ideas and fresh ideas. So you're telling us that we need to learn from Gen Z. Now we're in this stage, like Margaret Mead was saying, where we're learning from younger people. And yet our country, and my guess is a lot of companies are still being dominated by people who are, I don't know, past their prime, shall we say. Help us understand that. How can both of these things be true? Why are boomers having such a hard time moving off stage? Will they ever? Or are we going to be ruled by 90-year-olds here in a couple of years? <laughs> That's a great question. The answer is I do not know. First of all, let me just say, as a baby boomer, I do believe my generation has a very difficult time turning over the reins. Well, they're not ready. Well, what if they botch it up? Well, what if this happens or that happens? But the fact of the matter is we botched it up back in the 60s too. And so I would say, whether we're in a church or a company or a healthcare institution or government or whatever, we need to repurpose our gifts. I think many baby boomers just say, I'm just going to double down on what I did before. I'm just going to be better at it. I'm going to make more widgets or whatever it is we're doing. And I think we need to realize that our brains transition, and I put this in the book, from fluid intelligence to crystallized intelligence. And here's the difference. Fluid intelligence is what we experience mostly in our first 40 years, all of our life, but mostly the first 40 years. It's adaptable. It's creative. It's learning. It's all the creative stuff. Post 40, we still have some of that, but we move into crystallized intelligence where now we're passing on what we've learned. We're teaching what we know. We're delivering wisdom that we picked up over the years. And I think boomers need to say, I need to start stepping aside, but stay long enough to say, don't forget this, or can I hand you this resource? If we'll do that, we'll not only have way more satisfaction and fulfillment internally at 55, 60, 65, 70 years old, but we're playing the role that our brains were intended to play, dare I say, created to play, not just be forever 21 get a facelift. And I think we tried to solve internal problems with external solutions, with a Ferrari and cosmetic surgery. We need to be stepping aside and pouring into the emerging generation, which by the way, scripture calls us to do. And I think Gen Z would be a lot more 
appreciative of their yeah. elders and want to yes. receive the wisdom that they have to pass on, the good advice and the help that they need, if it was given more as advice and not controlling, if it was more given as, here's some things to think through instead of we need to be in charge, right? Because we've talked about how older people can get more frustrated with younger generations, but I think younger generations get awfully frustrated with older ones too, because yeah. they won't let them take their shot. You know, they want their own shot at church, at business, at life. And the older generations seem to be squelching that. Yeah, I think you're right. In fact, even as a parent of two adult children, I need to move from supervisor to consultant. I'm still offering resources and wisdom, but I'm a consultant now and I need to let them take the reins. If we'll do this well, I think there's great, great hope for our world. Well, that's where my wife and I found you on your parenting stuff. And then we've kind of followed you as you've continued to write. So I would say if you want parenting advice, pick up your books. And also I tell people to pick up the book Generation Z Unfiltered and a New Kind of Diversity, Making the Different Generations on Your Team a Competitive Advantage. Thanks so much for spending time with us. I really appreciate it. Keith, it was great to be with you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.